Hagen Partman. Tell us a little about yourself. Where are you from? All right, so I am originally from Lubbock, Texas. That's where I was born and raised. And then I consider myself from Dallas, though. I moved there about middle school and lived there up until I moved to Jack's Beach. So I consider myself a Texan for sure. So you come from a, a only child. Do you have siblings at all? Three siblings. So it's my older sister, older brother, and me. And then I have a younger half-sister. So I was the baby for about nine and a half years and then – my little sister came along, so now I'm kind of smack in the middle. That's cool. And you, you, this might shock you, but I do your research, or I do my research. So what is it like to be uh, a daughter of, like, a pretty uber-famous, like, YouTube star? It's something. I mean, and the thing is, my mom is like that all the time. And it's not just, like, a show or, like, a one-act thing. She's been witty and had that personality my entire life, so... For me, it's not a shock. I think she's the funniest person ever. It's just really cool to get to see her do that, um, like on YouTube and get to go on like the Ellen show. You know, her and I did the amazing race together. So because of her humor, it's taken us some really cool places. But yeah, it's fine with me. She drags me along on her adventures. So I'm all for it. What was because it originally I guess it was just somebody your your mom's a flight attendant, correct? Yes. So how long has she worked for Southwest Airlines? I want to say it's been like almost 15 years now. It's been for, it's been a while. And so she, it's funny because my stepmom's a flight attendant too. So people are always like, oh, is your dad in the flight attendants? It's like, no, <laughs> my stepmom was one first and then my mom became one. But um, yeah, she works for Southwest and I get to be her companion because she's not married. So I fly for free. So it's pretty nice. Yeah. So uh, like uh, Hagen's mom has like a super viral video of basically just making a joke off of the pre-flight safety brief that went crazy and I guess spun off into a, a bunch of different directions. I didn't even realize you guys were on the Amazing Race. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really cool. It's so funny how that story happened. She had some friends who wanted to see her spiel, and they've heard about it. So she's like, you know what? I'm going to have my friend record it for me. And then she texted me, and she's like, how can I send this video to all my friends? It comes out blurry. And I was like, just post it on YouTube. Send them the link. It's the easiest thing to do. <laughs> Thinking her few friends were going to see it. And then within a week, it had like over 10 million views. It just blew up before we knew it. And uh, so, yeah, because of that, we went on the amazing race. Uh, we got dead last. <laughs> but oh, you did? We, yeah. So my mom and I always say we were the first team for this fall because we were the first ones eliminated. But we made it two episodes. So if you ever go watch season 28, take about two hours and you'll see us start to finish it. Okay. <laughs> Amazing Race is one of those shows that, like, I grew up watching with my family. So what – I guess if you could, uh, like, boil it down a little bit, what is the process like getting into it? And then, like, how does it all work out? So our season was social media influencers. That was, like, the target contestants. And so, I mean, they had some really big-name people on there, like Tyler Oakley. I mean, they had – people who have millions and millions of followers and my mom and I were kind of like the bottom of the barrel like <laughs> we're like we don't know why we're here and uh so we went through like a casting process where they went through and interviewed all of us and then tried to make you know best decision on what teams would fit so we went to LA for a couple weeks and then um I don't know if you know Glozelle is her name she's a YouTuber she initially got it over us but then she broke her ankle <laughs> so oh, my wow. mom and I my mom and I got to be a part of the cast so I will say as someone who's watched it their whole life as well, I always thought like, oh, I could do that. Like obviously right. it looks so easy watching on TV. They get from point A to point B and they can't see the, you know, the clues around. But 
when you're there doing it, it is so difficult because your mind is in a million different places. You have no guidance and you can only see like what's right in front of you, not like the entire picture. And so, I mean, it's just a lot harder than it looks on TV. I will tell you that. But yeah, it, it was stressful. Everyone who got eliminated was immediately sick for like a week or two after because all the what? stress and like oh, high yeah. intensity. It, yeah. So I, once I got eliminated, I was sick for like a week. We were in Bali waiting for everybody else to get eliminated, but <laughs> we had a great time nonetheless. And even though we got last, I would do it all over again. And my mom and I keep saying like, they need to have a biggest loser episode, bring all the losers back and have us go at it because hopefully we're not the biggest, biggest loser. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so how does it work? I mean, do you guys have like a, a crew with you at all times or do they just kind of randomly show up when you guys are getting close to a pit stop or anything else? Like how does, how does the filming side of it work? So each, you know, pairing has a cameraman and an audio guy. And so our poor camera and audio guy, because if you go watch it, uh, the second episode, we decide to run instead of take our cab, which is initially like what ended up causing us the whole race. And so our camera guys were looking at us like, seriously, like we have to run with this humongous camera. Like you guys couldn't have just taken the cab, but they have to go right along with us. And so they're stuck with you the entire race and we got to know them pretty well. But um, yeah, it's just, you do your thing and they kind of follow you around. God, that's crazy. Unbelievable story. And <laughs> memories, I'm sure you and your mom, like, will never forget. Plus, they're, like, live on forever because they're on the internet. So it's always nice to go back and look at <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, some things I'm glad will be there forever. Some things, uh, not so much, like me crying on national television. But Well, that's I mean, what I was going to say. Is there, like, any, like, <laughs> like, bad breakdowns or fights between, like, I always look at mothers and daughters and I'm like, uh-oh. Eventually something's <laughs> going to happen here. So... They, the way they edit it, it's so funny how they can, you know, set up your personalities how they want to. There was times my mom and I got in arguments, but they didn't show that. They showed all the times of me being encouraging, my mom being encouraging. And so we came across as we got along the entire time, but that's not entirely true. But um, yeah, I'm very competitive. And so it was tough for me to do it with my mom because I expected out of her what I could do. And that's just not fair. So we would butt heads sometimes. But at the end of the day, like, I'm so grateful that I got to share the experience with her. Right. Well, cool. All right. Well, back to childhood a little bit. You went to Texas A&M. And I'm going to say, is that a family pick? Is that why you went there? Or is that just something that you're like, yeah, might as well go be an Aggie? Not at all a family thing. My whole family are Red Raiders, Texas Tech. Okay. So I was kind of the black sheep of the family. Um, I initially, right out of high school, I followed my brother to a D2 school in Stephenville, Texas called Tarleton. Went there for a year and a half. And then I surprised myself and was making really good grades there. I was like, holy cow, maybe this college thing is easy. I'm going to be a doctor, a lawyer. And then I'm like, I'm going to challenge myself. So let's go to A&M because it was close to home. And I wanted to get into sports and Johnny Menzel was there at the time. So I was like, Hey, let's get there, try to get some reporting, you know, get some experience. And so I get there and then real life hits me and I'm like, Oh, we're going to switch to communications. Like let's just go to the major that I, you know, can make better grades. in. so that's why I initially went to A&M, but I didn't get super involved there. I wish I would have like looking back, I didn't do sororities or too many organizations. School kept me busy. Um, but worked at a pro shop, which was like my introduction to golf. And so always forever grateful for that. That was it. That's where golf started for you? That was it. Yeah, my family, they are not golfers. Uh, my stepmom played a little bit growing up. But I mean, my whole childhood, I never saw a set of golf clubs. We didn't really watch golf. Um, 
And I remember like thinking at the time, like golf is so boring, which is why I'm like passionate about it now because I see the other side of it. Um, but yeah, my first job, I wanted to be a cart girl and like every other girl in college. So I went in and my boss was like, we actually want you working in the pro shop. Um, so that's what I did for two and a half years in college. And that was my first introduction to the game. Well, cool. So you started out as a, a journalism degree, I'm guessing? Yeah, communications. Okay. Uh, I did that all the two and a half years at A&M. And then I graduated with a degree in communications and a minor in psychology. It's different. I, I don't know. You know, there's not a lot of uh, like well-paid journalists that are out there. So where did this kind of start from for you? Why did you want to get into communications? Well, first of all, I knew how hard A&M was. So I was like, what major can I pick that's like <laughs> up my alley? And I'm not going to, you know, just destroy myself in. So that was the initial choice behind it first, you know, right off the bat. But also like a lot of young girls, I wanted to be a broadcaster. I thought I could be sideline reporter in the NFL. And that was kind of my pathway to get there. Uh, thankfully, that didn't go that way. But um communications just made the most sense for where I was heading at the time. There's still dreams to get that NFL job. I don't think so. I, you know, I've gotten to try some on air type stuff and not sure if it's for me. I, I'm, I would love to learn it better, but as of now, I, I really enjoy just telling stories from behind the camera. So I would never turn down a job to do sideline reporting or anything like that, but uh, I'm really happy where I'm at. So no plans to change. <laughs> so you get done with, college and where was your first first job at post so okay my first job was with um all pro tours what it's called now was adam's pro tour at the time and my sister actually sent me the linkedin post about it saying we're hiring a social media manager and i remember thinking like oh that's golf like i do not want to work in golf i want to do football something different and i applied anyways and my boss and i had like two interviews over the phone and for some reason he gave me the job. And to this day, I'm like, I don't know why you hired me. Yeah, thankfully he did. But I worked there and was their social media manager, kind of grew the position to more communications, PR, kind of grew it into a lot of different things. But starting out was just social media for, for a smaller golf tour. Which means what? You're taking pictures and posting it and making it look really good? Yeah. So when I started, he basically just gave me the logins and said, go, you know, go post things. And I didn't even understand the lingo of golf yet. So if you like, I know a lot of golfers that are now on you know KFT or PGA tour who knew me my first year out there. And we all just like crack up about how I used to talk about golf and how, what I used to post, but they, all the players and my boss were so patient with me. They were, you know, they would teach me, Hey, let's word it this way. Let's don't say it that way. I really had to teach myself from the ground up in every aspect when it comes to like shooting, editing, producing, golf terminology, the game of golf in general. So yeah, I would just take pictures on my iPhone and I would try to post it. And then I remember looking at Corn Ferry Tour and PGA Tour and being like, I want my content to look like theirs, but obviously it didn't. And so I went out and bought my own camera. My boss pitched in and got me a lens and we started to kind of grow our media budget a little bit and we put more into it. And so I was the first person ever in that role. So together, my boss and I kind of grew it. And uh, over the years, it just transformed into a better covered tour, which was my ultimate goal there. Right. No such thing as bad ideas either. It's like awesome when you're at a location or, or a company that people are, are telling you and inspiring you to be like, no, do more. Like there's no such thing here as like a wrong thing to do. Yeah, for sure. It's cool because coming out of college, first job, having like the freedom and something that you're you're learning and understanding more about the game that you're covering. Um, I'm sure like 
the passion for it kind of came along the way, but were there like mentors or anybody else that were helping you out through this process? I mean, the main one was my boss at the time, like him and I got really close and it's people that I've worked with, um, just other employees who had been involved in the game for so long were trying to teach me and help me along the way. I was just so new to it that I took anything I could get. I tried to be like a sponge. And then after my first year with all pro tour, I started, you know, paying my way to go to Q school finals or go to second stage, first stage. I met Kevin price. And so he started mentoring me a little bit and teaching me the ropes. And I offered, Hey, I'll fly out there, you know, on my own dime and come help you just to kind of get experience and just to, you know, see how they run things. And so, you know, Kevin became like a mentor to me and then um, just meeting people along the way. So thankfully I've had a lot of, you know, really encouraging people to help me get to KFT. So it's been awesome. Right. And that's, I mean, where did you go after all pro? So I stayed with them until I enlisted. Um, I enlisted in January of 2018 and I, I still worked there up until I left for basic training. So that's a, that's a different story, but you know, with the national guard, you can enlist and not ship for basic for another six months, which is essentially what I did. Once I enlisted, I kept working a little bit and then went to training, came home. And then I was pretty much active duty for three years. And then once that ended, I went back to all pro tour and that led me here. So it's been pretty much a full cycle. <laughs> so why did you decide to enlist? Man, I've, I've had time to reflect on this. It's, it was crazy. It happened so fast. Um, but to be honest, my like desire to serve started when I was really young. And I know it's such a cliche answer, but I was eight when 9-11 happened. And I remember just being so like consumed with the idea of justice and like trying to help in some way. I was so young at the time, I couldn't comprehend what was happening. But I was asking my parents, like, how do I enlist in the military? And my brother and I were like Googling how to enlist in the army. Like, what, can, what jobs can we do? And my dad and my parents kind of brushed it off. Like I was a cheerleader at the time. They were like, oh, you probably don't know what you're talking about. Like you just stick to what you're doing. And uh, then I, I got to a point in my life where I was like, I, I want to look back and have no regrets. And I want to say I tried it and I want to be, you know, content with what I've done in my career and in my life. And so it was like an all, you know, like an hour or nothing thing for me. I was 24 and I just had this urge. I, I'm religious. So I felt like God was just saying like, Hey, now like just jump into it. Let's do it. And so with about two months notice, I was in a recruiter's office signing my papers and I was, I was off. So it definitely stems back to when I was younger, but. Was it the decision right away for the army or did you look at other services? <laughs> so it was a decision right away for the national guard. We had a good family friend who was a Lieutenant Colonel. So he kind of helped me along the way and having his advice um, helped a lot. But I, now with hindsight, I wish I would have explored different branches. Like no, no hate to the army. Like it's been great, but I wish I could have explored different branches and other jobs too. Cause I think I had like uh, tunnel vision blinders on and I was like, Hey, I want to be military police and I want to go army. And so it just like happened. And then my recruiter, of course, they don't give you any time to think about it. It's like, Oh, we better sign this now. Yep. This position is going to be gone. If you don't do it now, this bonus is going to be gone. So you, before you know it, you're just like in a uniform. You're like, Oh crap. Like, what <laughs> Okay. So why did you, I mean, you wanted to be a cop. Why, why did you choose military police? So I think it goes back to when I was younger. I just have a huge passion for justice and like the whole justice system. Um, and so I thought that it'd be doing police work, you know, I mean, it makes sense, military police, yep. but that's when you're active duty, of course, I'm national guard. <laughs> so our training is a little different. Uh, we went to the same basic and the same, you know, job training as active duty, but 
um, when it came to deployments and activations, it was not as, you know, it wasn't like pulling people over, giving tickets or, you know, taking drunk people to jail or anything like that. It was something I didn't expect, but um, I mean, the deployments that I got to do and the activations I got to do were so unique and cool because I was military police. So I am thankful that I did a combat role and then I got to experience, you know, those deployments and those activations, but um, yeah, I'm just very passionate about people and about justice. So I think that's kind of what led me to that point. All right. So everybody, it's, it sounds like you had a good mentor, at least that got you on the right path to your recruiter's office. You signed up for delayed entry uh, and, and knew that you're going to be in the national guard. So anything that was shocking or unexpected from basic training or AIT? Oh man. Uh, well, I will say, I wish also my mentor would have pushed me to go officer. Because yes. Well, I'm 24 with a degree. I was going to say, you know, there, there's some other things going on here where I would have been like, well, hold on a second. Yes, I, I respect the decision you're making, but I think we could go down this path as well and maybe create a little bit better experience for you. So now whenever I talk to people about the military, I can give that perspective, but I think I'm glad it went the way it did because he said, hey, you got to learn from the ground up. You didn't go to West Point. You didn't do the core at A&M. You know, the basics of the military and how can you lead people when you, you know, don't understand what exactly you're leading. And I really respect that point of view. I, I believe in having to earn your earn your stripes and earn your way up. So I was like, hey, I'll start at the ground up and I'll, you know, hopefully prove myself. And one day if I want to commission, I will. So that was my mindset there. But um, the most shocking thing from basic and job training I mean everything <laughs> I was expecting it to be more physically challenging than it was and it was very much so not it was just the mental aspect being a 24 yeah. year old who came from working on a golf course every day to sleeping outside and you know like having to dig holes to, to lay in and then like having bugs crawl on you and using porta potties for the first time like stuff like that that you just don't think of it's just mentally was so challenging um you know, having to deal with other people's mistakes and having to pay for other people's like wrongdoings. That was tough, but um, I miss my family a lot. Just the whole mental aspect as a whole was, was really, really tough for me. Yeah. I enlisted after college as well. And when I got to basic training was the fact that I was older and there's a bunch of like kids, even though I was only like two, two and a half, three years older than them. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, this is not that difficult. Like just <laughs> Listen to what they're saying, and we're not going to get in trouble for this. But, man, it's yeah. uh, it was crazy to be around a, a group of people from all over, not just the United States, but really the world, like a true like melting pot of civilization. And I learned so much from those experiences. But, man, I think we learned them, like, the hard way instead of being like, we could have learned these lessons as well if we would have just <laughs> listened and done it right the first time, but maybe not. Yeah, it's like you're having to mature with these people. And, I, and like you said, it, it was a melting pot, but that taught me so many life lessons. It's, I mean, we all came from different backgrounds, different religions, races, you know, cultures. But at the end of the day, like we knew each other, we had each other's backs and we all became really close. And without the military, I might not have been friends with some of these people for various reasons. So that's something that I've loved about the military. All right. So you come back from, from learning how to be an MP and I guess that's the the biggest thing there is like you thought you're going to be a cop and like uh and, and you're right national or uh, active duty they are doing like patrols and base security and all normal things that police officers do at bases and and you know across the United States and the world but what did you learn while you're in training 
that I guess kind of surprised you that you didn't think was going to be involved in normal NP work? Um, I mean, a lot of it was normal police work, but like the detaining operations was one thing that I was like, oh, holy cow. Like, I didn't even think that this was like part of our job, which ended up being something I really enjoy doing. And then I ended up getting deployed to do just that. So um, that was kind of a shock, but um, yeah, I mean, it was cool to get to see like how some of the police training takes place when it comes to like responding to domestic violence or um, school shootings or, you know, there's a huge like spectrum of things, but um, the most shocking thing was probably the detainee operations. All right. So you're home and then you said you did a couple deployments too in the National Guard, right? Yeah. So, well, I did one deployment and then a couple activations. So as soon as I got home, you know, you're back and you're like, okay, going to look for a job, like kind of back to normal a little bit. And then within two or three weeks, I got a call and it was my recruiter. And he's trying to, of course, sell it to me. Like I just won the lottery. He's like, you are so lucky. They picked you, like you're handpicked and you're deploying to Cuba. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so I had about six months. Um, they had to do like the prep work for it and everything before I actually would deploy. But that was sprung on me as soon as I got home. And so deployed to Guantanamo Bay for, it was a year total, but nine months on island. And then um, as soon as I got back from that, COVID hit. So I went to go work with the governor for a COVID mission. And then the civil disturbances broke out and, you know, 2020 was just kind of a mess. So I was activated that entire time. So all in all, it was like almost three years by the time I finished the active duty stint. So not just like your first uh, deployment that you have, but ultimately going to a location and you talked about detainee handling, but like probably the worst detainees that uh, the United States has ever had custody of in the last 25 years. So what was life like at Guantanamo Bay? Yeah, I mean, to start with the positives, it to get a deployment there, I know a lot of people don't call it a deployment because we're on an island and we have like three days off a week and go sit on the beach and it's not like a combat zone. It was, I mean, it's like being back in college again, almost like you and your friends lived all together and then you'd, you know, you'd work your certain days, but then other days you were off, you'd go to the beach, you could go, there's like karaoke bars, you know, bowling alley, there's a nice gym. So it really was a really unique experience. And being that 9-11 had such an impact on me enlisting to begin with, to getting to work, you know, I'm trying to not break any like, NDAs here, but getting to, you know, work close enough with them um, and seeing kind of what the result was after all that was kind of full circle for me and really, really cool. Yeah, for sure. And, and honestly, it's one of those things where like everybody hears of it and like thinks they know what is going on down there. And it's always interesting to like get other perspectives of, of nah, that's like not really the case. I've also been to Guantanamo Bay and not so much uh, doing your job, but the, the job of which you would hand detainees off to. So I was an interrogator for a long time in the military. Uh, oh, that's and, awesome. And that's, that's how I find my way there. Long, long time ago, though. Yeah, I think that's, that's incredible. I think the thing that like, surprises people the most is how well detainees are treated. I mean, like, you know, they'll, yep. they'll say like, oh, they're getting tortured all the time and of course, whenever I got there, it's like, no, that doesn't happen. They're treated very humanely. Yep. And I think that happens to shock people the most. Yeah, I, I, that's the number one question I get, too. I'm like, man, it, it's it, <laughs> I relate it to, like, how I deal uh, with my children. I'm like, if you're nicer to them, you know, you get a lot more information with honey instead of vinegar. And, like, the other side of it is, like, that's just not how the United States does that thing. Exactly. Man. All right, so... 
Texas during COVID. You're working for the governor. When did like, you know, I'm guessing you, you weren't, were you activated the entire way through? Or is these just random activations that kept popping up part of your National Guard time? Yeah, they just kept popping up. It was kind of like once you got off orders, a news that were coming down the pipeline. So I got home in February of 2020, and then I started looking for jobs. And then once COVID broke out, I I became really close with the Lieutenant Colonel uh, in Cuba, who was running the governor's task force in Austin. And he was looking for people to come help him. And I, I texted him. I was like, hey, like, I know I'm only an E4, but I would love to come help in whatever capacity I can. And so he's like, yeah, like, pack up your stuff, like, get down here. So I kind of got ahead of, the, like, the orders that started coming out for the quote-unquote crappier jobs. I mean, I got to go to the governor's, like, headquarters. And uh, it was a bunch of generals and, like, you know, full bird colonels. And then there's me. And they're probably like, why is she in here? <laughs> like, who is this girl that snuck in the front door? Um, but, yeah, I, I had a, I have a great learning experience down there. Got to work with some incredible people. And so I worked on that mission for about two months and then same thing. I came back and COVID obviously was still a thing, but I was home for about a month looking for, you know, to get back into golf. What am I going to do? And then the civil disturbances broke out. And so then I got activated to Houston and we were down there. I don't even remember how long, like six weeks um, on QRF, just on standby, like waiting for something to happen. So it was just like, you think you're done and then you go back and then you think you're done and you're back. But um, at the time it felt frustrating, but it worked out exactly how it was supposed to. And it's such a cool experience to say that I got to take part in, you know, those like history events that, that have happened. Right. So how much time do you have left on your National Guard contract? So I have a little less than two years. It's such a weird spot right now because I just moved to Florida for this job. And so they're doing an interstate transfer. And so I'm still waiting to get placed in a unit here in Florida um, and obviously with like everything going on in the world, it's just crazy. Um, like, I don't know what's going to happen if they could call me tomorrow and say, Hey, we found you a unit and they're getting deployed or they're getting activated. You just, you just don't know. So, um, that's definitely been in the back of my mind. Uh, but still, still have two and a half years, or a little less than two years left now. And just kind of waiting for my unit here. Well, cool. So when did this, uh, your new job that you started, so when did this, the, I guess the search happen? You said you wanted to get back into golf, but when did the PGA tour opportunity come up? Yeah, I went back to all pro tour at the beginning of 2021. So I picked back up there. There's now a women's tour with all pro tour. It's called women's all pro tour. Uh, It's incredible, but I worked as a, like over communications for both tours there the past year. And I had saw that they were hiring for a digital producer, like social media role. And I was like, Oh, that'd be like a perfect fit for me. Like I started thinking about it. Like, should I apply for this? Even though I just started with all pro tour. And then I went to Q school finals to cover our guys. And while I was down there, they were like, Hey, we have an opening with our comms position. You know, you think you'd be a good fit. Are you interested in it? And I was like, uh, yeah, like <laughs> there's a job, like, of course I am. Um, so I ended up sending my resume in that Monday after Q school finals and got my offer two weeks from that day. So it happened really fast, but, um, and it's also in a role I didn't necessarily expect, but it's been, it's been so awesome. Wow. I didn't realize it was, it was that quick of a turnaround. Then. Yeah, it was, it was a quick turnaround. And then when I got my offer letter, it, my start date was two weeks from that day. So it worked out. <laughs> I'm used to being like on the fly and, you know, having to do things like that. So thankfully it was not too big of a, of a struggle, but, um, I was ready for it and I've wanted a position here since 2017, 2018. So um, 
it's a little later than I had hoped, but like, I think the timing of it is perfect because if I had gotten it back then or started back then, I might've missed out on my military experiences. So, um, I'm grateful to have gotten to do both. So when you came to the tour, what did you, uh, think you were going to be doing versus what you're doing now? Well, so I, whenever I first looked into joining the tour, I imagined myself doing more digital media. That's what I did with all pro tour. But then once they moved me into the communications role, it's just, it's actually been something I enjoy even more. And I didn't expect that. It's a lot more writing. So I'm having to adjust to the writing style and frankly get better because I'm not the best writer. I'm working on it. Um, But it's a lot of player relations and building stories of these guys and pitching it to digital, which I'm very passionate about. And so it's still kind of the same. It's just the tour can break things down into, you know, five different roles or two different roles. Whereas I was kind of wearing all these hats with all pro tour. And so, um, yeah, I get to do some of the things I used to do with all pro tour here, but it's just more refined. And, um, obviously we get to travel to some really cool places compared to where I was, but, um, but yeah, it's been great. Yeah. So I was going to say, how's the travel been? It's been good. I have gone to Exuma, Bahamas, Panama, and our Suncoast Classic in Sarasota. So I've already done three events, two international. Um, the furthest I went with all pro tour was like Kansas, I think. And that was pretty far for, for us. So yeah, it's, it's been, it's been great. We're going to have to check in like later on this year after you like start hitting all the Midwest stops and you're going to be like, Ooh, like it's not, the, not, in the, <laughs> not in the Bahamas anymore. I know it was kind of a tease to start there, but it's a good thing that I actually like really love what I do. So it, it works out, but I'm used to going to Louisiana, Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma with the other tour I worked for. So just getting to sprinkle in some unique places here and there is good enough for me. That has to be one of like the easiest adjustments, not just for you, but also for like the tour bringing on a new employee. Is that somebody who is not just excited about travel, but is like very well versed in travel and being independent. Cause I'm, I, sure there's a lot of new employees that like struggle with that yeah they had mentioned that um people who didn't know that I came from a traveling role before they're like you know some people aren't fit for this role after a couple months you might realize like this isn't for you and you know we only let people travel two weeks in a row they have to come back for a certain amount of time and I mean that's a relief for me because before I would do like three weeks on week off three weeks on and with the military you know you're just kind of used to being gone so yeah it, it was an extremely smooth transition. I kept waiting for something to happen where I'm like, holy cow, like this is overwhelming, but I've never felt that it's been obviously a learning curve, but I feel like I kind of slid laterally into the role and it worked out perfectly. What do you think of the, the traveling roadshow that is the corn Ferry tour? Like, is it kind of what you thought it was going to be or a lot more? It is a very like well-oiled machine. I say that a lot because there's so many moving parts to make these tournaments work. And they do such an incredible job. And I think it's, I have perspective because I come from a small tour where we have one little trailer and everything's out of that. And then you go to KFT and there's like, you know, seven different departments on site and there's like the truck, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the truck and, you know, the rolls guys and I don't have to set up tents anymore. I don't have to put stakes in the ground or like pick hole locations, you know, the freedom of not having to do that, but it's incredible how we get there and it's just like ready to roll. I, I don't know how they do like all the stakes are put in the ground. It's roped off the signs, the banners. It's just, I think some people can say, Oh, it's like a little brother tour to the PGA. But with my perspective coming in from a smaller one, I'm like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my right. life. Like, it's like the biggest event. So yeah, I, I am so impressed with it. It's just, 
happens seamlessly and um, there's a lot to learn coming in where there's, you know, all the different departments to learn who does what, but once you get on site, it's, it's done. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a pretty easy transition as far as that goes. Well, cool. So what are the stories that you're excited about this year? Players that you want people to watch out for all that stuff? Oh man, that's a great question. So I, again, have a little bit of bias, I think, because I've known some of these players longer than I've known others. Like Sam Stevens, I'm totally team Sam Stevens. He is just an incredible guy and he, he's won five all pro tour events in the last two years, like over 200 grand on a mini tour is just kind of ridiculous. He just went to qualified last week at the Honda, um, made the cut. So I definitely be looking out for him. I'm also, let's see. Taylor Montgomery, Mr. 26, Mr. Bubble Boy, big Taylor Montgomery fan. I'm hoping that this year he finds it. Also, Ben Griffin. I uh, got to know him pretty well last week at our Sarasota event. And just hearing like that he completely quit golf and was going to work in finance. And then some like signs were pointing him back into golf. I could relate to that, you know, stepping away in the military and then coming back. He's playing really well. And I would love to see him succeed as well. It's just crazy because they're all so good. And so I could sit here and say, like, these three guys are the top players. Like, they're all going to kill it. And then next week they could place dead last. So it's, like, that's the tough part. But I'm big on character. And, like, those are just some of the guys that I've been, like, man, those are just, like, solid people. And I want them all to play well. (laughs) So it's hard for me to pick just a couple. It's, like, a a very, very thin margin, too. Not just between, like, the guys that are on a Corn Ferry Tour, but the guys who are Corn Ferry Tour that – probably could compete week in, week out on PGA Tour. It's crazy to see the guys at that level, like how good they actually are. 100%. I mean, like our whole motto is like one shot away, and that's exactly what it is. You're All these guys are one shot away from being a next PGA Tour star, and you see guys who were on the PGA Tour come back down to KFT and can't contend. Or you see like at our WeCom, we had some of our PGA Tour grads come back, and they're in the mix. They're still playing well, but they're right alongside our KFT guys they don't have cards for the PGA tour. And so, I mean, I think if you were to take 15 of KFT guys and, you know, stick them into the field next week, they would contend just as well as the field there. Um, that's just how golf works, but that's what makes it so interesting and gets me hooked on, <laughs> on the job. No, absolutely. So this is just one step in a long, long path that you have going ahead of you, but what do you think uh, next? If there, if, if you could dream away and say, oh, in, uh, you know, my two-year goal is to be up at PGA Tour comms, working the big tour, and five years from now I want to be a host of whatever, what would it be? Man, I've thought about this a lot, and I know this is so cliche, but I'm, I think I'm just still so grateful to be where I'm at. It's hard for me to look past this. Like, this is like a dream job to me, and I can't believe that I get to do it, so if you were to ask me, what do you want to be two years from now? I'd say like right here, but better at my job. And, you know, if I'm like one step up where I'm like a senior director or have a, you know, more of a managerial role, that's, that'd be awesome. But I, I hope that I'm much better at my job and I hope that I'm still here. I just can't imagine myself anywhere else. Um, I, I love what I do. Uh, long-term, I still want to stay with the tour. I don't know if that would still be comms or, you know, on-air type stuff, but Um, hopefully just learn the system in and out and then see where it takes me. And they seem to know where people fit very well. Uh, They hire some incredible people. So I trust wherever, wherever they take me. (laughs) It's very good. Good answer. And also like very, you're very, very grounded. I, I I think that's the biggest thing here. I don't know how much uh, that's tied to your upbringing or, or I don't know, but it's kind of amazing to me. 
Oh yeah, well, thank you. That's, I appreciate that. My parents have always, I think they raised me that way. We are from a very small town in Texas and my dad worked really hard to get where he is and I'm religious. And then I think the military just, I mean, implemented everything that I've been taught my whole life. I think I was a lot more, not self-centered, but self-focused before the military. And then once I went through that whole process, it kind of stripped me of feeling like I'm deserving or like I'm entitled to anything and I have a different perspective on life and I'm just really really grateful to do what I do and without the military I don't know if I'd have that same perspective so um, I I can't say that the military hasn't played a role in that yeah for sure it teaches you a lot a lot of uh, I think it improves some of the strengths that everybody has and then definitely highlights a lot of the weaknesses that we all carry around with us so like we try to hide from and it it like cast this glaring spotlight on it. And it's like, if you want to succeed, like you got to fix this for sure. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard to, to admit and, and come up with plans to overcome some of that stuff. But that's the best part about it is that you ultimately end up doing it. I mean, especially when you have no choice, like patience and gratitude are two things that I think through basic training and job training, uh, you're forced to learn or you're not going to make it. And so there's times where I just wanted to scream, you know, and just be like, what the heck am I doing here? But I mean, you have no choice. Like you got to get through it and you have to put your head down and, and uh, keep trucking. And so I think that that translates into my, you know, my life now, if there's like something that someone asked me to do, but I don't want to do it. It's like, I'm going to do it, put my head down and get through it. And um, yeah, just gratitude to be able to, you know, not be, sleeping in a bunk bed and <laughs> be yelled at by a drill sergeant I at know. 3 a.m. So <laughs> where uh I mean obviously your your mom and dad incredible worth ethic that they passed on to you is that where all of this kind of comes from is just one one task at a time if I my word is my bond and if I say I'm going to do it I'm going to follow through for sure yeah and I still have a stepmom who played a really important role in that she was a coach growing up and she is one of the most like hardworking, determined people I've ever met. So I, I, I moved in with her and my dad in middle school, which is a very volatile age. And so I think I was a little more like free spirited and kind of all over the place until she got a hold of me and was like, Nope, we're doing this. And they've always held me to the standard of just, we're going to do this and we're going to do it right. And we're going to do the right thing. And they've never accepted anything less than that. Um, but they're, I mean, without my stepmom, without all my parents, um, I wouldn't be who I am. And they all have taught me something different. So some people can say like, oh, you know, divorce, that's tough, but I wouldn't trade it because I have three parents who are so different, but hopefully I've accumulated the best parts of each of them and um, they're all incredible and they've, they've definitely made me who I am. Yeah, it's all about how you take it. I mean, that's just the cards that were put in front of you so you can make the most out of it as a team, not just specifically you, but like as a parenting team of the three that you have or you can, you know, it can, it can turn out really, really bad. But you mentioned it a couple of times and that's your faith. And I know it plays uh, a huge part in it, but has that been something since childhood or is that something that's kind of grown with you over time? Yeah, so I was raised in a Christian home. I'm from the South, so Southern Baptist is kind of what we were raised going to church. Um, I went to a private high school, but then I would say during college, I kind of fell away and I was doing my own thing, definitely living a very worldly life. And I think honestly, whenever my faith came back, the, the heaviest was in the military because 
before I enlisted, I didn't pray very much. It was more like, I know God's real, but I kept him in my back pocket. And when I needed him, I'd pull him out. And when I went through basic training, I know I talk about it a lot, but it was such a important part of my life that the first night there, the very first night I said a prayer and I was like, God, like, what am I doing? Like, please help me. And then it started to become a trend. I did it every single night. And this is going to sound crazy, but I was getting horrible injuries in my hips and my knees and my feet, like a lot of women do. And I would pray for healing and I would feel healed the next day. And I don't know, like, I, of course, credit it to God. And I don't know if like an x-ray could confirm that, but I would pray for healing to make it through basic training and it, and it happened. And so I remember like journaling while I was in basic training, like I want to find a church when I get home, I want to get, you know, planted in the church. And I did, I found a great church in Dallas. And then um, of course it's faith. So there's times where you feel so connected and so close to the spirit and to God. And there's times where you feel distant, but I'd say like ever since that time in the military, it's been like the focal point of my life. And um, I'm not perfect. I'm definitely the furthest thing. I'm definitely a big sinner, but God has been so good to me. And yeah, I'm just thankful to have that relationship and that my parents installed it in me uh, growing up as well. Yeah. You're not the first person to find God in, uh, in hard times when you're all alone. That's for sure. And I think it is a, a huge theme in the military and specifically when you're in training and you're, you're by yourself surrounded by a bunch of strangers really. And the, the few times that you have of alone time, and I say few, but it ends up being a lot. You're left with your, your mind and your emotions and dealing with a lot of things by yourself the majority of the time. And it's one of those things where it's more, the more similarities that you could find with people of like thoughts, feelings, and beliefs, you know, the kind of the easier it is as you help to build out that tribe. Yeah. And I think something that was so like important in my walk of faith was I, I, well, I had a church in Dallas. I felt so settled and um, strong in my faith. And then I got deployed and it's really easy in the beginning to like, I set up like a small group. I would read my Bible every day. And then the more you get like detached from going to church every Sunday, from having your church friends right there with you to your parents saying like, Hey, can I pray for you to being like you said, all by yourself. That's when it really tests your faith because at the end of the day, it was just me and my Bible in my barracks room. And it was like, am I going to choose to seek him and like continue this relationship? Or it would have been much easier to just say like, Oh, I'll figure it out when I get back home. When I get home in eight months, I'll go back to church and, I'll get involved, but you know, four or five months into deployment, when you're having to just like find anything to get connected with God, it, it can be tough, especially when, you know, people around you might be Christians, but they don't practice or they're not as involved. So that's when it came down to like, Hey, it's just me and God. And like, what does that relationship look like aside from church, aside from community groups, you know, aside from podcasts or sermons. So, um, it was definitely like a defining moment in my faith, but it makes me appreciative of people that I do have in my life now that um, hold me accountable and, you know, are on the journey with me. Yeah, absolutely. Has there been any uh, like blowback or, or people not understanding of how passionate and, and vocal you are about your Christian beliefs? For sure. I, I've encountered it probably more so in the military than anywhere but I think as a Christian, <laughs> I've had to pray through, okay, how do I respond to this? It's, that's been tough. There was one instance where we were um, activated for civil disturbances and some guy knew I was a Christian. He was like trying to poke holes at my faith and this is going to crack you up. But I remember just praying like, God, give me the words because I was so angry. I'm like, 
this man is being disrespectful. He's not even trying to have a conversation. He's like, how could you believe that? And like, he's trying to attack me. I kid you not. I ate an MRE. It was a spinach fettuccine MRE and my tongue swelled up. (laughs) (laughs) I was allergic. And so I was like, okay, this is just a sign to not say anything because I'm not ready to have this conversation. Right. And it worked out because I ended up having time to think about it. And I went back later and him and I had a very civil conversation. And also he had time to be like, Hey, I kind of approached that weird earlier. And I'm sorry for how I said that. And, you know, so there is a little bit of um, pushback, but I've seen God so closely for myself and I, I know him on a personal level so that if I get pushback, that's okay. You never know what seeds you could be planting or what ideas you could put in someone's heart. So even if at the moment they're totally turned off to it, you never know, like in a couple months or a couple of years, they might go back to that moment and find the relationship with Jesus. So um, pushback is not a bad thing. It's at least you're getting the word out there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, uh, you know, kind of going back to like the similarities between you and I, I, I've probably, you know, I've, I've done, I think over like 5,500 interrogations, uh, throughout my career and almost all of them, except for maybe like a handful, like less than a hundred are all done with Muslim men. And I, uh, you know, was trained and everybody's like, Hey, you never get in a, in an argument or discussion don't even open the vein up of discussing the differences between Islam and Christianity. And I did it almost every single time, not because of, and not coming from it, a, a position of knowing more or, or preaching or attempting to uh, convert, but by a, a place of understanding and seeking information to try to find common ground between the two. And, my success is a hundred percent like a direct reflection of having the ability to be as open and as brutally honest and to put myself in the position to be like, okay, well let's, let's talk about the differences then. teach me. And at the end of the day, like it's just a discussion and I know we're not going to agree, but we're both going to learn a little bit about each other throughout the process. That's so cool. I mean, I've, obviously I can't imagine like the courage that you had to have also to bring that up to those kind of people. I've, I've done it with, uh, you know, fellow soldiers, but um, in your position, that must've been extremely tough. But like you said, I think it's coming at it from a position of conversation and not defense. So like I myself am not the one who has to stand up for God and say like, this is who he is. And this is why like God can do that for himself. But um, like you said, open conversation is definitely the best way to go about it. And um, I wish that all religions and, and Christians especially had that outlook of, you know, it doesn't have to be like a defense mechanism, but more so just conversation about God and, and about Jesus. But I would love to hear all the stories from the guys that you've talked with. I'm sure oh, they're incredible. It goes on. <laughs> Dude, we need more time for sure. So <laughs> outside of all this time that you have on the road, you've moved to a new city and that's Jacksonville, Florida. So what's life like in Jack's Beach? Oh man, I love it. It sounds so cliche. I really, I really, really love it. Um, I'm obviously from Texas and the closest beach was nine hours away and it was South Padre. So that doesn't even count. Um, So now I'm like five miles from the beach and I'm definitely like, I prefer warm weather. So the coldest days here, you know, forties, fifties. But it's, it's so much fun. It has a small town vibe to it whenever you get to the beaches area. And that's so different from Dallas. And so 
um yeah it's been great in the tour like the environment there and the friends that I've made there have been incredible I think I've only been like in my apartment for four weeks outside of traveling and doing different things so uh I leave literally tomorrow again but um yeah, I love Jacksonville. It was funny. I was in Dallas this past weekend and I moved my flight a day up to come back because I like missed it. I'm happy to get back home. And so it's already felt like home to me, which is which is huge. She was trying to escape Dallas and, and get back to warm weather. It's okay. Yeah, it was like freezing there. I was like, yeah. I can't. <laughs> I love you guys to my parents, but like, I got to go. We'll exactly. No, I think it's weird, too, because in, in Jacksonville, there's this, like, strong Texas creep going on lately, too. I spent a lot of time down there for work, but you got uh, uh, Shipley's is down there now. There's Whataburger. You got some Bucky's moving in. Like, all these comfort foods for you and comfort items are all coming to your to new Bucky's. spot. Yeah. Yeah, I, someone mentioned Bucky's, and I was like, what? That was, like, a Texas thing. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> And there's barbecue places, uh-huh. Tex-Mex, like, it's perfect. I can't ask for more. <laughs> well, there you go. She At least she's comfortable. She's got everything she needs. Yes. Well, cool. Absolutely. I miss H-E-B, but Publix will do. Well, yeah, that's a different story altogether. Uh, on uh, the other <laughs> podcast that we have called Trap Draw, it's constantly, we're constantly ranking. Uh, this is what happens when you run out of things to talk about in the golf world. You end up ranking uh, grocery stores on, like, you know, we have a whole bunch of different categories. And for some reason, everybody's always riding hard for HEB. And a lot of people just don't get it how good it is. Like, it's everything that you need in one spot. The issue with Publix is it's too expensive. Oh, I agree. And I'm lost after my going there. And it's and the only other option is really Trader Joe's. That's even more expensive. Yep. So I eat at tour headquarters. Like, I'll go up there. If I don't have to go in the office, I'll still go for lunch because it's so cheap and it's good. Yeah. I'm like, well, it's cheaper than going to public true well all right everybody uh i'll leave hagan's uh social channels in the show notes you can follow her along and with all the pg or uh, corn fairy tour action all year long until she moves on to bigger things who knows but that's where she's at i appreciate you taking the time and uh as always if you ever need anything let me know but if not i'll see you next week at the players so we'll be good Yeah, Cody, thank you so much for having me. That was so much fun. I appreciate it. We'll see you next week. All right, cool.